Um, I'm Ron Brownstein from National Journal, Gloria Borger uh, uh, from CNN. Um, and we are here to talk about the general election. Um, before we, uh, essentially the post-convention period primarily, but we are going to, since the morning discussion um, was so engaging on the primaries, it didn't get quite through the Republican uh, convention, so we're going to talk about that for a few minutes at the top. Uh, and then we're going to talk uh, about um, some of the big uh, currents in the race in September. Uh, after about an hour and 25 minutes in, we'll take a little break and we'll come back and talk about the last few weeks of the campaign, the debates, and the period after the debates. Uh, as well as, um, uh, and then we'll kind of close with uh, kind of a, a thoughts from our panelists about where this election leaves the two parties um, and what they've learned about uh, where the balance of power lies after this. Um, uh, and then we will get you out of here at 5.30 in time for the, uh, the forum. But, and we'll have a break. And we'll have a break at, the, uh, at the, about the hour and a half mark. So uh, with that, I think if we got everybody, we do have all of our... Uh, our panelists, as, as we said, we we're going to go back a little bit before we go forward to kind of turn to the Republican side um, uh, to start um, by talking about the selection of Paul Ryan and then a few minutes about about the convention. So and wanna... uh, yeah, let's let's just go back a little bit uh, to talk because the Democrats did talk about uh, their conven convention and their critique of uh, the Republican convention. And so we wanted to give you guys uh, a chance to talk uh, a little bit about, and that would be maybe Russ, talk a little bit about the convention and uh, what was perceived, I think, as um, a, a lack of kind of raucous enthusiasm at, at that convention um, and uh, your sense of whether you achieved what you needed to achieve in setting the tone uh, for the general. Uh, sure. Thanks. Uh, uh, thanks. Um, no, listen, I, I think that the convention was, uh, was, was pretty successful. Um, I think that we achieved a lot of what we wanted to do. Um, you know, we were hampered to a bit by, you know, uh, ironically, a hurricane. And uh, the first three or four days of the convention leading up to it was, you know, are you going to cancel? How much are you going to cancel? Is there going to be a program? And we, we had to uh, certainly navigate our way through that. Um, we then had to take uh, a four-day program and, 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 and make it into a three-day program. And obviously, without uh, naming names, you know, certainly talked to a lot of people and managing a few egos. And, 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 Go and, ahead. Name and, some names. And, and, and who's, getting, who's getting speaking slots and when and, and, and the amount of time that they were going to be speaking. Um, but the, 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 the goal of the convention was to uh, – you know. Uh, start to talk about who Mitt Romney was. And uh, the first night was to, you know, lay out the problem. The second night was to talk about the, uh, about we build it, we build it. The third night was to talk about uh, the specific policies that Governor Romney would do if he was president, sort of the day one job one stuff. And then the fourth night was, was Governor Romney and who he was. And I think that we were successful in telling a lot of those stories. I think stories that hadn't been told before and uh, uh, particularly some of the families that Governor Romney worked with at his church. I think that uh, Tom Stenberg was incredibly effective talking about uh, Governor Romney's experience at Bain. I think some of the women and people that Governor Romney worked with uh, as governor of Massachusetts were particularly good. Um, so I, I think that in many ways, and, and you know, at the end we saw that there was a, you know, 
we were fine. We, we got a bump. We, got, well, we did what we needed. Two questions. Um, you know, this morning, Stu or Matt, uh, the job one, day one, talked about how that was kind of the, the prime director for the campaign all the way through. I remember thinking during the convention, even when you got to that in the last two days, it was less uh, specific and detailed than I expected. And, they were, and it seemed that in your tilt of the four days, it was really much more toward the introducing of him and kind of softening his image. Was that your primary uh, goal yeah, I there? Think, I think the, the, the primary goal was to introduce the governor. I think the secondary goal was to talk about what he would do. And and honestly, it is, it's, you know, a convention, I don't think, is the exact time to get into it. It's not a policy debate. It's a convention. So to kind of talk about that then, um, in, in very specific detail, I don't think would be the, the appropriate place. To but it was that. also clearly a moment uh, to appeal to women, and maybe Neil can talk about this, sure. the, the famous Ann Romney, I Love Women uh, speech, and a, a moment to, to do that because you knew you had, a, you had an issue. Neil? Um, there are a number of issues we were trying to ad address, and I mean, we had We'd taken the pounding from the Obama campaign over the summer, and as was pointed out in the, one of the previous groups, it hadn't moved the ballot numbers a lot, but it had moved the image numbers. And so what we were trying to do with the convention, I mean, the goal, you know, my goal in terms of, of where we wanted to move the numbers, um, we were looking to move image numbers, attribute numbers, um, um, Rather than we weren't worried about the ballot test as much then as we were, you know, mitz fave and fave, because we knew we knew that would that if we were inverted, it was it was going to make the fall campaign extraordinarily difficult. And so, and and so when we came out of the convention, our 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 image improved, the attributes we're looking for improved. I mean, it was a success in terms of 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 those specific objectives that we were we were trying to uh, to hit. We weren't trying to do you know to do everything. You can overreach and try to do everything in a convention and, do, and end up doing nothing. And we decided uh, we were going to you know, limit it to some extent, become more focused. And we didn't, you know, as I said after the convention, when I was down to cause trouble at their convention um, in Charlotte, that if we'd wanted to, to hit on, uh, on Mitt's vision for the future and, and done policy, we would have done it. That wasn't our goal. But in terms at least of the public polling, and maybe this is a moment to bring in the Obama campaign about what they were seeing. And by the way, we want yes. to encourage right. you guys to right. converse with each other should you decide the, the, to do so. No, the, the, one, the, one thing that did not, the one thing that did not go right side up after the convention and the public polling was cares about people like me and caring about the middle class, I believe. Even after the Republican right. no. convention, immediately after the Republican convention, he was still facing difficult numbers on that front. I'm wondering what, I mean, because you were saying this morning, David, that uh, earlier today that the, the, the core argument you were trying to make on the business side was that even though Romney was a success, his success would not benefit people like you. So that was obviously a critical uh, a pillar of your portrait of him. Did you see the Republican convention undoing the damage that you had done? How much had it done to, in fact, reshape his image as someone who cared about average middle class families? No, on those, I mean, on those measures, uh, when we were looking at uh, the kind of the empathy measures uh, for us, we didn't see a lot of movement for Governor Romney. We did see a slight improvement in his fave on fave, uh, but there wasn't a lot of intensity. Um, like there wasn't a tremendous movement to the very favorable, uh, just a lot of settling and somewhat unfavorable. So, um, you know, we didn't see uh, a lot of movement. And I think because the Democratic Convention came so quickly afterward, that whatever kind of uh, chance to kind of lay into that some more was probably truncated 
uh, from, from at least what we saw in the data. And then we have to ask um, you folks, and anybody pick this up, and then we can move on, about your own internal reaction to Clint Eastwood. And we've already heard from, from these folks about that. And um, everybody could see the look on Ann Romney's face, I think, when we were sort of focusing in on her during that. Um, and Stuart. Um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Clint Eastwood, uh, to, to his credit, has described it completely accurately, what happened. Um, I, I don't think, um, personally, I don't think it was a big deal. Um, and, you know, people have said why we didn't show the film, the convention film. And uh, it's because the networks um, uh, had not committed to showing it. NBC had said they would show it. The other networks hadn't, which is not sliding us. That's been their standard. I mean, they did that four years ago for both convention films. Um, they don't want to just cede time to give you ten minutes of film, you know, eight minutes of film. So um, you take that primetime slot, you put it up there, and you're not going to have someone you know, be able to carry it. So I think a lot of people love the film, which is great. I mean, a successful film, um, but it wasn't uh, an option to run that and have it. Um, so, um, you know, originally Eastwood was going to speak the night before, uh, and then everything got truncated because of the uh, convention, because of the uh, hurricane. Um, and look, and I, our, our voters like Clint Eastwood. I guess that's a good question. What, what was he supposed to achieve? I mean, even beside the film, the woman who gave the testimonial right before about him writing the will for the teenager was so powerful and compelling and was also off of prime time. And I remember watching him come out on stage and wondering, okay, well, what, what is he supposed to do for you even if he did it better than he did? Um, well, first of all, the, the woman was, fan, uh, was fantastic. Um, but, you know, we had no idea at that point that she was going to be as good as she was. And I think, you know, listen, in retrospect, if we knew she was going to be that fantastic, we probably would have rescheduled that. I mean, that's just in, in hindsight. Um, you know, you, listen, you have the one of the most biggest iconic uh, Hollywood stars who has rarely made an appearance at a – has never made an appearance at a political convention, is willing to come in and say something on behalf of your candidate. Um, for five minutes, uh, that's a that's a pretty uh, pretty good good opportunity. You know, there was this interesting, and I, I don't really understand it, and I'd be interested in what David thinks it drop off in viewership uh, for both conventions, but more so for the Republican convention. And um, no way to prove this, but I would think that knowing that Clint Eastwood was going to lead off probably drew more voters, more viewers. We, we want to move on to the kind of the main event, but real quick, just for the historical record, was his speech, did anybody read it? Did you, did you know what he was going to do, what he was going to say? Uh, he was going to say what he had said at two uh, fundraisers where he had uh, been fantastic. And, and, was, so that, and was that what he said? No. And was that what he said? Was this speech different no. than the fundraiser speech? He, he did what this idea came to him as he was standing there, as he said. So, Russ, like you're planning this whole thing and you're sitting so, there and suddenly Clint Eastwood comes out? And well, I said, I said, you know, are you going to... You know what we talked about. We're going to talk about what we talked about at the uh, at, at these uh, fundraisers. And he looked at me and said, "Yep." Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Make my Clint, day. It's yeah. Clint, it's, and it's Clint Eastwood. 
You argue with him. Yeah, that, that, that was the moment when you probably wish he'd gone back to being the strong, silent type. Uh, we, have to, we have to button okay, we have to, up. We have wait. to button up one other thing before you. Wait, you Ryan. Want to do the, yeah, yeah, let's the, just. The, the selection of. Oh, go ahead. Stu. I mean, I, 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 I don't think that there's reason to believe that you could, if if there were moments of the convention that weren't successful or whatever the end results of the convention. Um, I think it would be uh, specious to lay it at Clint Eastwood's feet. I really do. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there are bigger forces at work. I mean, it wasn't Clint Eastwood's uh, fault that X number of people didn't watch the convention uh, or that there was a hurricane or that there was a Democratic convention with a lot of oomph behind it four days later, three days later. So I, I, right. I think it's the, the causality of that and results would be. One other thing we've got to button up real quick before we move on, right. uh, we requested, uh, is the selection of Paul Ryan. And let's, let's posit as, as a given that Governor Romney thought he would be a help in governing and had a personal chemistry uh, with him and, and, and obviously respected him. Assuming all that, how did he rise above the other options uh, from a political point of view? Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, this was a, a decision that um, was made 100% by Governor Romney. He asked me, Jim and I were talking about it earlier, it's, a, it's something of a thankless job to, to be the person who, who selects the vice president. But this year we felt we had um, a great group of um, candidates on the Republican side. And what Mitt asked me to do in April was to put together um, uh, a set of, of vice presidential candidates who would be uh, that he could consider. And he didn't want um, us to come to a, the, the best candidate consensus. He wanted to look at um, dossiers on, on a number of candidates. And in that period between April, and he also wanted the option to make the decision early. So he wanted the, uh, all the work to be done by July 1st. He ultimately decided not to go uh, as or make the decision as early as July 1st, but he wanted to have that option. So between April and July, um, we, we did our vetting, and the vetting also included Mick campaigning with all the people under consideration. It uh, included all of them going on, on new shows. It can, included all of them campaigning on their own, working with our team. Um, in addition to all the work that, that um, we did as a team back in Boston. And, and in the end, Mitt had three criteria. Um, one was that the person be qualified to start um, on day one, um, two, that there must be nothing in their background that would be a distraction from the campaign and the important issues on the campaign, and three, he wanted um, a, you know a choice of, of several candidates um, so that he could pick not um, on any one issue but on a whole spectrum of issues, and um, he was provided with that choice and. Uh, he was not concerned. Uh, I, I think he, he liked Paul for a number of reasons. He liked his youth. He liked um, his Midwest Wisconsin background. He uh, really appreciated the fact that Paul took on head-on what he considered um, to be one of the most important issues in the country and that he took it on with courage and conviction. And that um, was not concerned about that in the end at all. And. Um, there was also something when they were campaigning together, people on the road, um, Stewart in particular, had, had commented um, about how when they were together it was more than one plus one equals two. And that, um, and, and Mitt felt uh, very comfortable with him um, 
and and that was his selection, and it was, did it was he, very easy for him to make in the end, I think. Did you, what, was it the part of the, and we need to move on from this, but part of the process was, did he say, I've narrowed it down to three people? Did you know, Beth? When he, I, I, I knew how many um, uh, people that I uh, completed uh, <coughs> vetting packages that I gave to him. And, and, and within that group, um, he really did not, he met with pretty much this entire group of advisors, and he asked all of our opinions. I did not share my opinion with him since I was leading the search process, but I, everybody else did. But he kept he kept his counsel, and I don't believe that uh, I, I didn't know until he told me who it was going to be, who it was going to be. Did this reflect at all a, a changing theory of the race? In September, you go on to say, uh, you know, talking about that it's it's really a, a choice about the future rather than a retrospective referendum. I, I thought on the day that you picked Paul Ryan. You were kind of underlying choice here. I mean, this is this is now you're talking about very different directions for the future. The Democrats, as we'll bring them in in a second, as they, they said this morning, they saw this as an enormous target by tying you to the Congress and so forth. When you picked Ryan, did that at all suggest that you were moving away from trying to frame this primarily as a referendum to something more forward-looking? Look, um, the selection of, of Congressman Ryan was not a political choice in the least and was never discussed as such. It was who Governor Romney wanted to be as vice president, and in the story. It wasn't a political choice at all? It was not discussed as well, such. Let me ask you, even, I mean, I, even, I if, that was, even if that was not a motivation, Stu, can you, you must have been doing a ledger of the assets and liabilities that he brought politically. What did that look like in your head or anybody on the table? You mean after he was picked? After he was picked, yeah. Uh, Neil, do you want to? <laughs> yeah, actually, Matt. Before he throws it to yeah. Neil. Sorry, Neil. I mean, I'll be glad. Well, and then we should ask Dan, yeah. who's actually yeah. been. Yeah, I, I think yeah. Dan can speak to it in a second. But it was obviously a big opportunity uh, for us. We always felt at any point in the campaign, when we were talking about big issues, we were we were we were in a good place. And if we were talking about important issues, whether it was Medicare or, or spending cuts, at times, um, obviously the other side came after us pretty hard on it. We always felt that if we were going big, it was good for, for Governor Romney. And so certainly the selection of Congressman Ryan was an enabler for us to go big and talk about big things. I just want to point back to, to going back to what Beth said and I think what Stuart was starting to talk about. You know, I, um, you know we talked earlier about on the uh, primary panel about how each week in the primary it was a must win. And one of our must wins was Wisconsin. And Congressman Ryan... We had coordinated an endorsement with him behind the scenes that he would endorse right before the Wisconsin primary. He had some fundraising commitments to the RNC that he wanted to keep. And I never went on the road. I, I made the decision as campaign manager that I was going to stay behind and be chained to my desk. And, uh, but I had a regular call every day with, with the governor. Every day we talked at least one time. And as soon as they got out there campaigning together, it was like talking to your buddy who has just met a girl and is giddy. <laughs> they, they hit it off, and there was immediate chemistry. The advanced guys would immediately call me, and they'd be like, oh, he's, the, he's our favorite surrogate. You've you got to see these guys together. It just worked. They both liked big ideas. They both liked talking about substantive issues. They both believed the country was in trouble and that they needed to do big things to fix it. And so I could see it going all the way back. Both Catholic yeah. deer hunters. <laughs> yeah. Going all the way back to the Wisconsin primary. Uh, wait, 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 let, let, me, let, me, let me take a shot at this, too. I, 
I thought, I mean, when you asked the positive negatives, I mean, when, when I sat down and went through this thing after, after Paul was picked, I, you know, I went through three things. Number one, he brought policy. I mean, he stood for something, and it was, it was you know, bright lines, and you know where he stood. I thought he brought politics, too. He was good politically for us. Um, he was young. Um, he appealed to conservatives, although we didn't need conservatives especially. I mean, we, we had conservatives locked up. But, I mean, he was, he was, he was good in terms of, of politics. And I thought he added personality to the campaign. He added something to Mitt. When, when Matt talks about um, the two of them getting together, after I saw, on, I watched it from the headquarters that Saturday when he was announced. And then the second event of that day, uh, Paul introduced Mitt instead of Mitt introducing Paul. And I was like, oh my God, these guys, there's, it's, I kidded Paul later, it's like a bromance. Mm -hmm. I mean, but, you know, and, and we made a special effort to make sure the two of them campaigned together a lot more than we would have otherwise because I thought that they played off each other extraordinarily well. So I, I you know, I thought there, there was a number of different positives that he brought to the campaign. But Dan? Yeah, the only thing I would add is that he's, you know, he was a remarkably disciplined surrogate. I mean, this is, I mean, the guy did over 200 interviews in about 40 days. He was doing about four to 10 interviews a day between local affiliates in the battleground states plus, you know, network stuff. The, when people would complain, we don't hear from Paul Ryan's because he wasn't making mistakes. Trust me, if he was making a lot of mistakes, those would be going viral. So he would There go was that race, the uh, marathon. Name three, like you can't name three instances. <laughs> like, no, really, it was okay. an, he would pound through, when, when the governor was in debate camp, so he was dark for like three and a half days. Paul was doing 10 or 12 interviews a day. So he, I think, gave some cover for, for Mitt that, you know, some other picks may not have been able okay, to do. Okay, but we're going to get to the, the And I would just add also on the fundraising side, I was struck by we were getting donors calling the campaign wanting to build major finance events around Paul Ryan. So we talked a little, we heard a little this morning from, um, from the Obama team on uh, their impression of Paul Ryan, but let me let me ask Stephanie. Uh, let me go to you on this. Okay, so he's picked Paul Ryan. Um, there's the bromance, as as Neil calls it, uh, going on. Uh, Mitt Romney seems to have new energy, and your reaction. Well, first, let me say um, what what Matt was referring to the the chemistry between them. We noticed that too. Um, when they were campaigning in Wisconsin during the primaries. Um, and it's something that we picked on. And that's an important piece of picking a vice president to make sure that there is chemistry between uh, the principal and the Veep. Um, you know, we, we were prepared for a number of different uh, people. And as I said this morning, uh, the storyline was going to be the same uh, because much of the records between the, the people that were being considered uh, were the same. It was, you know, a choice between going forward or going back. And it was doubling down on. Uh, a lot of the policies that crash the economy, punish the middle class. I'm sure we've heard this ad nauseum. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so when uh, the Ryan choice was announced, uh, obviously we had a lot of information um, just because Ryan was a pretty public figure over the past couple of years when he really made a name for himself, and we were familiar with his policies. Um, so, you know, we, we were able to uh, articulate, um, you know, what that meant in terms of uh, Governor Romney's candidacy and his agenda. Um, and I think at the time uh, we said, uh, if I remember correctly, it completed the merger with uh, the Republican Congress. And, you know, we, we, tried to, we tried to tie the governor to that. All right, so let's now, and now that we've kind of gone 
covered the backstory. Uh, let's let's go to uh, where we are, what we are supposed to cover here this <laughs> afternoon, which is the period from the convention uh, to the uh, to election day. And let me start by asking each each side, and, and maybe uh, uh, Jim and David, you could tackle this first, and then a couple of folks for the Romney campaign. When both conventions are over, you're leaving Charlotte, you've left Tampa. Um, give me your sense of the state of the race at that point. In public polling, at least, the president was ahead. But I, I, I want can you talk a little bit about in, in in your sense of what were the what was the choice? How was the choice to find at the end of both conventions? What was your most likely electoral college path to victory? Uh, and what did you consider your biggest asset and your biggest liability on the morning after both conventions? In other words, what work did you have to do? Right. Well. We were encouraged after the conventions, I think it's fair to say. Um, these guys got dealt a bad hand because they had to truncate a four-day convention into a three-day convention, and that created programming headaches that we didn't have. Uh, and, uh, you know, our convention came off, and, and it's tremendously advantageous to have the second convention because whatever benefit the other side derives, from their convention. When you go quickly, you can snuff that out. Um, and we felt that we had done that, told the story well in our convention. Obviously, President Clinton was very helpful. All the speakers, uh, Michelle Obama did good work for us, Castro as our, uh, uh, as our, our keynote speaker, and, and then the Biden and the President. When we came out of it, um, we, we got more out of it than we ever thought we would. Uh, and we felt we were in very strong shape coming out of it. And, um, you know, one of the things that we had discussed internally was uh, uh, the state of Florida and how we were going to treat Florida. And uh, we had made a decision that we were going to wait until mid-September and uh, after the conventions and see where we were in Florida before we fully committed we were in. We had invested a lot in Florida, but we hadn't been in Miami, for example, the Miami media market. Uh, and, uh, you know, when we emerged from the conventions, not only had we gotten a little bump in our numbers, but we, we saw that Florida remained very competitive despite the fact that they had their convention there. And we made the decision <coughs> to go uh, full out uh, in Florida. Um, so we really were, um, we, we were, very optimistic coming out of our conventions. And in terms of message, you know, we drove the message that we went there to drive that, you know, this was a choice, that this was about two different approaches to the economy, the top-down approach uh, that we had seen in the last decade versus uh, uh, investing in the middle class and a focus on the middle class. Uh, and we drove that hard during that convention. We felt that was a winning message for us, and we had amplified it. So. I, I would say we felt very good about where we were coming out of convention, beyond which there were ancillary benefits. Convention was very energizing for our, for our supporters, did very well, and perhaps uh, Teddy and others can speak to this, but money was very good coming out of the convention and gave us more resources than we had anticipated. As I said in the earlier session, we had kind of gambled on the front end and front-loaded our media. Uh, not without any guarantee that we were going to be able to make it up on the back end and be competitive uh, uh, on the back end. Jim. Yeah, I think the, the map widened for us. I mean, Wisconsin was clearly some place that we had to, you know, pay more attention to, spend more money. The Florida decision was a big decision for us. It was a $40 million decision, and we decided right after the convention we were going to go and go hard. 
uh, and that was a big moment. We believed since midway through the primaries that the Midwest was always going to be, you know, where we were going to win this thing. And we, you know, came out of both their convention and our convention continuing to believe that uh, the Midwest was looking very good for us, and Ohio especially. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other thing is they didn't do enough to fix their Latino problem uh, in their convention, although I thought Rubio gave a great speech. Uh, we looked at that and said we're going all the way in Florida. And so that was a large was was the the that Latino decision was was that the really big piece of the Latino Florida decision and or seniors and and to David's yeah. point the middle class stuff I mean we looked at this and just said there's no reason not to go now I'm I mean the main point though is there was an, there were there were a number of reasons for us to believe that we could actually win in Florida yeah. and that it wasn't illusory you know in this business you have shiny objects out there that you chase and you can spend a lot of money. Uh, to uh, no good purpose in the end. And so you want to be careful, especially on a state the size of Florida, not to overinvest there when we knew we were going to need resources elsewhere. And what about the decisions that were made on your side coming out of your convention? I mean, one could argue that the Obama campaign spent <coughs> a lot of money defining you over the summer. And some people say that was not responded to enough, the Bain ads being, uh, being the major part of that. They got a bounce out of their convention. You you did not get what, what they got. What were the decisions that you were making at that time as you looked at the same playing field they were looking at? They decide to engage in Florida and Matt? Oh, sorry. Jim. Accidental, guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I we obviously had some work to do on the Hispanic voter front, and um, we realized we needed to, to, to focus our, our, our time and energy, not nationally, because it just wasn't going to be possible, unfortunately. But we put a focus on the Hispanic vote in Florida, and we, we um, shifted resources uh, to try to improve our, our numbers with Hispanics in Florida. Um, we also did the same in Nevada. We did see some movement, and Neil can speak to this, in Florida. But we definitely had issues that we in inherited, um, and we talked a little bit about this earlier. Um, the long slog primary didn't help, for sure. Uh, but we did make a concerted effort to move numbers. And I think we had some success in Florida. And I think Neil can, can point out a few. Before he does, before he does, we're going to Let's come back to Hispanics in about one minute, but just get a broader take from you on whether uh, David Axelrod was right when he said the Democrats got more out of their convention than they thought they would, and what the overall state of play was in your mind, and maybe Rich can come in here on the Electoral College when, as Jim said, it was expanding. What was your was sense your of, map? It was your, what, what was your sense of what they achieved at their convention, and then also what, what, was, the, oh, what was the state of the race on the morning after both conventions? One, one thing before Rich gets to the map. Uh, with the convention comparison, you know, we obviously had some distractions at our convention that we talked about, whether it was the weather or, or whatnot. Um, we had a aggressive response operation that we had down in Charlotte, and there were moments during the Democrat convention that I was somewhat hopeful that some of the distractions that they were having at their convention with their platform, platform. and other items would be beneficial to us. However, I went to was laying in bed about to go to sleep, and I watched their 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 primetime lineup of President Clinton 
and President Obama, and it just, it just made up for any distraction that occurred. And so unfortunately, there was a brief moment where we thought, hey, these guys are going to have to endure a little bit of what we endured, but it just didn't work out that way. And Did you worry a, about that too? It's fair to say that there was a little bit of dyspepsia uh, <laughs> at that moment. I mean, we had conf the truth is that the primetime lineup is pretty much everything. Uh, and this other stuff is kind of uh, the uh, passion of uh, all of us who live with this moment to moment. So we were comfortable that we could overcome that. But, you know, we thought we had a pretty good convention going. It was kind of aggravating that. Uh, right. so, so, Neil, did you, on the, uh, after both conventions, the day after both conventions, where, where did you think the race stood? Well, let me, let me just address the convention for a second, the Democratic convention, because it, um, I got really tired of reading uh, verbatim comments from voters um, praising the Democratic convention for weeks afterwards. Mm. Um, what, their, what their convention did, which we didn't expect, was um, we saw a change in mood of the country, right direction, wrong track. We saw a change in economic optimism right. just as a result of the Democratic Convention. We'd never seen – that's just, you know, you don't expect that. We didn't Bill Clinton? Um, whatever. <laughs> um, but it was, it was remarkable. I mean, there, there, there was a measurable change in terms of well, – of course, Democratic enthusiasm went up. But also, the, I mean, the mood of the country went up. Even – I mean, the economic optimism, the uh, Michigan Consumer Confidence numbers go up because of the Democratic Convention, because Democrats now feel obliged to say, yeah, the country's headed in the right direction and the economy's getting better. And, and you saw that, and mm -hmm. we were dealing with that for the first, you know, 15 days or so of, of September. Mm -hmm. And so it had a, uh, I mean, Axe is right when he talks about their convention stepping on our convention and, and, and our, our growth and movement. Um, we, I think we would have gained more point, gained more in terms of Mitt's image um, but, you know, their convention, uh, you know, placed it right after ours and their success um, helped kind of change that political environment going can, into the and so can I ask you, yes. Can I ask one question? Yeah. Uh, you guys dropped your advertising off right after the, your convention, which really surprised us. Uh, all of a sudden, you disappeared uh, at a point that we were, you know, kind of putting, you know, pedal to the metal here. What can can you speak to that at all or Stuart? Um you know, we always had limited resource questions and it was finite amount of money and that amount of money that we would have spent then, we went back historically and tried to look at um states in which media had been run during the conventions and states in which they hadn't run during the convention to try to get the degree to which you could uh, use television advertising during the conventions to drive a message and tried to calibrate sort of really uh, uh, what was the delta there. Um, and it's a difficult thing to do, you know, it's sort of junk science. Um, but um, it, the consensus was it was really a, you know, 20 to 40 million dollar decision and that we'd rather have 20 to 40 million dollars to spend in October and that it would mean that we would come out of the convention um, not, you know, maybe a point or two, whatever the difference was, but it was a hard decision, but we enjoyed spending that money in October. Um, and that was, that was really. Well, but that raises a larger question. 
a larger question, which is the early money, ver spending the money early, as you guys did over the summer, versus spending the money well, late. Uh, well, who was right? Well, well let, me, let me point out something. Okay. That, you know, it cost us $135 million, we were talking about this earlier, to win the nomination. You know, the president didn't have a, he got it for free. So that gives him $135 million advantage right there. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I go back to this, that the day Mitt Romney announced um, in June of 2011, he had, I don't know, 25% or so support of the Republican Party. That's it. The day that he announced the president of the United States had, I don't know, close to 50% of the support of the country. Um, so, you know, 47, 48%. So we had, over the course of that process, had to win the Republican nomination and then go about the business of getting a majority of the country. Mm -hmm. The president's task was very different. He had to grow his vote share, if at all, very marginally. And he had more money to accomplish that goal and the levers of the White House. And that gives you tremendous, you know, having done a reelect in 04, um, that's better. In but fairness, though, you had you had four, you also had four, six, seven months of blanket coverage of a race in which you were getting tremendous platform to make a case to the country. And do you think, in the end, that process? Please, you, please. Wait, please. wait, wait. That's, no, it's not, it's not, I'm not saying it's comparable, but it existed. And, and, no, and I that, guess I guess I'm wondering if you felt that at the end of that process, say you know late spring, you were in a stronger position so, well, than me, you were the fall before. Well, I'll just say so. In February and March and April of, of 2008, did you guys feel you were being given a gift by the primary? I don't uh, think so, yeah. probably. Well, <laughs> well, Jim, can you talk about the early money and then we'll... Well, we had a, a theory which was just different. We, our theory was, at the end, ubiquitous spending. I mean, the last two weeks of the campaign were at, what, Margo, six to 8,000 points in That's all the nuts. battleground markets. I mean, we just didn't think at that point TV mattered. And we thought it was way more important when you had a, a deeper view. The other thing, coming out of the conventions, our research showed that 75 to 80% of all voters had already made up their minds. And, you know, we just thought spending earlier was a very important moment because that number, David, in June was 60, 65, 70. And so we banked basically our entire campaign on spending money in June. We moved $65 million out of October and September and put it into June and July. I would say this, um, you know, first of all, I think we probably got a better deal in our primaries in 2008 than you got in 2012. We didn't have this sort of hammer and time ideological thing to deal with uh, so much in our primary. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think that to say that they had sort of this, um, un, you know, this blank slate on which to paint is not is not really true um, but uh, there's no doubt that uh, we took advantage of that period uh, after uh, in between after your primary when that ended and to the convention uh, to fill in some blanks that you didn't have the opportunity uh, the opportunity to do and that was important in terms of Terms of framing but, the race. Garcia, yeah. It's real important here. Just to, everybody said. We spent all the money we had, and we spent money we didn't have, and went and borrowed money. So it wasn't like we were making a decision not to spend any money. We spent it all, um, and the only question was once we got money from, kicked in from the general, 
that week of the whether or not we spend money in the Democratic convention that week. Um, so it, it wasn't like we had X amount of money and we were holding it back. So let, let me but go you, they spent yeah. a summer hitting you on yeah. Bain, like but, a summer. But, yeah. <laughs> we, sure, but we, we, we spent all the money that we had. They had a lot more money. So it's it's um, it's it's, it's it, 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 you know, it goes back to the to the independent expenditure conversation which happened yeah. a couple hours ago, which is it depends on when you have the money in the campaign. It's not you can have all the money in the world, but if you don't have it at the right times, you can handcuff the uh, the ability of the campaign to respond. Let, let's get from let me bring in Rich and for one more point about kind of where things stood in everybody's mind in early September. Uh, Jim Messina said they felt the battlefield expanding. Uh, the Electoral College map. When you're sitting there after both conventions, what seemed to you the most prof uh, the most likely pathway to 270 Electoral College votes, and what were some of the states that seemed most in play for you, and then those that seemed most difficult? Well, I knew once they decided not to play in Indiana that we had them on the <laughs> run. It was, uh, it, was, it, was just a, it was just a matter of time at that point. But uh, no, I, I mean, our, our path, uh, you know, it, it always had to include Florida. We had to take North Carolina back. Uh, then you got into Virginia, Ohio. Uh, then, then across uh, New Hampshire, Wisconsin, Colorado, Iowa, Nevada. Uh, so it was a, it was an amalgamation in there, uh, and and Jim's exactly right. I mean, coming out of the convention, it was just a low number of persuadables. The, the, the obviously the, the the tack that they took was was entirely correct. Ours was to go after uh, independents, high propensity, low support uh, voters that we could that we could move our way and turn out. Uh, we we that was that was the approach we took with all the volunteer voter contacts, with all of the uh, the paid voter contacts, and and ultimately uh, we we moved some numbers there. We just didn't, and at uh, that point, then the, the nine states that we kind of ended up focusing on those were your at, the, at that point those were the, those were what you were looking at and again uh, you know at the Is end that right yes okay. yes sir but but at the end going into Pennsylvania was not a snap decision we, we had offices we had 65 staff on the ground there 26 offices all the way through we, we just we didn't know what turnout could be generated in in the Philly market. We knew as you got further west, our our turnout would increase. And as you saw on election night, those numbers, you know, Pennsylvania ended up being one of you know it, 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 the numbers closed as the night went we'll, on. We'll come back well, to Pennsylvania later. later. Can, yeah. I just say one, can I just yeah. say one yep. thing? I do think one of the forget about who's right and who's wrong and so on. Uh, you know, the election's over, but um, there is a, a a clinical question to be asked, especially in this age of super PACs, which is. Um, how much is every media dollar worth? How impactful is it as you move forward in the campaign? So um, in the last six weeks of a campaign when coverage is so intense, when debates are so important, um, how much impact does this media really have? And I don't know that there's a, Neil, you may have a sense of this, but, uh, and David, you may from our own stuff. I think that's an open question and one that people are going to have to look at as they plan future presidential races because I have this feeling that um, media is very effective before the conventions and it is decreasingly effective after the convention. You think the negative ad the ads cancel each other out? Well, I just think people are getting information. Look, people, people understand that what we do in some ways is, maybe in every way, is propaganda, okay? They, they view that this is not objective truth. And so they're more apt to believe what they can see with their own eyes. They can see debates with their own eyes. They, can, they, they watch the news. They, they see wall-to-wall -wall coverage. And I think that, at the end of the day, um, uh, moderates the impact of paid media. I think that's an interesting point. And we talked a little bit about super PACs in the 
Republican primary panel. And, you know, during the, the primary, the super PACs were good for Mitt Romney and bad for Mitt Romney. But after going through a primary and a general election campaign, and this is by no means a, a slight to the super PACs, they were just much more effective in a primary because mm -hmm. there wasn't as much saturation on TV. Um, they were just able to break through more. And I don't know if there had a, a numbing effect because many of these states, uh, because our primary went so far out, uh, many of the target states were exposed to super PAC ads. And maybe there is a, a sense by, by voters who are watching TV to kind of tune out ads that aren't Obama ads or Romney ads. I can't quite explain that, but it's definitely something that people are going to have to really look at as they plot out their strategies in 2016. Okay, and let me, um, let me just make one. I mean, I think it's a very interesting question, David. But the thing is, no one has the nerve to pull off their television. If we really believe that, we go dark. Yeah. And that's and yeah. what we're talking about is is sort of equal force. And the only time that we had equal force with the Obama campaign was toward the end on television. And so um, I think they do at that point begin to cancel each other out. But I think had you gone dark in a state, you would have been crushed. Well, and and as you heard Jim say, I mean. And Margolis can speak to this. I mean, the spending was on both sides was, you know, like nothing we've ever seen before, which, which is part of the question in this sort of super PAC age. I mean, every one of us was in a battleground state at one time or other during, except, well, even you got the New except Hampshire. Matt, even right? You tried to escape it by staying chained to your desk. But you probably got some of the New Hampshire. And the volume, the sheer volume of it was, uh, you know, I don't know that we fully right. comprehend this, the impact of all of that and whether it just becomes that, a, that, a blur. That's going to be my point, exactly. The, yeah, there, uh, there's a point of diminishing return somewhere, and probably before the end of this conversation, you're going to say, what are your regrets? And my regrets are what we collectively did to the poor people of Ohio and you know, all these other things. You're singing a different I, tune, Marco. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, when you get to 7,000 points collectively, and this is the one, one point I'd make, is we weren't looking at you as Romney and Obama. We were looking at you as Romney and allies and Obama and allies. And when we were getting up to that... 7,000 point range on your side. We were, you know, kind of hanging in there at, at five and a couple places we were at 6,000 points. But for those of you who, who aren't, you know, focused on gross rating points every day, this is just beyond it's any insane. comprehension. Right. Well, Eight, it, nine Jim, spots in, in our, in our, uh, in our morning meetings, and Beth can attest to this, we had you know, 10 a.m. meetings every morning and we would once in a while show, okay, on the, in, let's take a snapshot of Columbus on any one given day and how many ads they see. Uh, on each channel from your, you and your allies and us and our allies, and it's just, it filled up the, the page. It was, you know, let me just make one point. I mean, I, for, for okay, us, us it was very frustrating that the only message we could have any impact on whatsoever control at all was what we were doing. And it, would, it was frustrating to see people, well, you know, Romney versus Obama, they've got, you know, this parody of stuff, and we were going like, no, we don't have parody, because we, we don't have anything to do with these. And it's not what we would be saying half the time. And so it was sort of a, you would look at it on, you know, you know, red-blue, and, but it was, so the amount of money when you compare that we were able to spend versus the Obama mm -hmm. campaign, 
Well, that right. let, let, have so much more efficiency and let, let's talk about the making race. Your own spot. Okay, yeah, we have to get back to the let, race. Let's talk so, about how it moves forward now in September. Okay, uh, Gloria, and, uh, okay so I want to talk about Mitt Romney uh, going on Meet the Press on September 9th, which was the first time I think that we may have seen a, a little change in Mitt Romney. Talked about keeping parts of Obamacare. I'm sure. You might recall uh, that that appearance. So let me let me ask um, whoever wants to take this in the Obama campaign. What was your reaction to sort of that moment when there seemed to be? Uh, I don't know if it's a different Romney. You guys would have to characterize it. Yeah, I doubt they would characterize it that way. <laughs> um, well, I, all I would say is this. We were aware, you know, we paid a lot of attention to what Governor Romney was saying. We were aware of subtle um, uh, nuances of, of change. Uh, more than anything, what we were aware of, and, and this accelerated as the uh, debates approached, was his performance improved dramatically uh, over the course of that month. It might have been a clue to us before that first debate. But, uh, in September, you're saying? In September, yeah. How and, do you, you know, know leading, this? Uh, leading up to this, uh, the, the Univision mm -hmm. town hall meeting. Right. How do you kind of know, so what were the discussions going on, that he's a better candidate? What did you see in Our, I mean, you know, David, you were probably showing some of this footage to voters, but, I mean, it was very, he very clearly was more relaxed. He was more connecting. Uh, and, you know, his rhetoric was, uh, was, uh, uh, br a broader, more inclusive rhetoric. Right. Um, that was very, very clear to us. There was, I mean, to, to David's point, um, what we began to hear in, you know, mid-September, um, which we had never heard before, was people referred to Governor Romney as relatable, um, as, you know, the one thing that we understood is that we held this card around middle-class values that we did not believe, based on what we had seen in his record, that he could attain. And so the humanizing of him and, you know, much more crisp in his presentation. Uh, and look, anytime you would send a signal to these, and we were looking at the same voters, uh, Obama voters in 2008, independents, undecided. That is the universe. As soon as they start saying, huh, that's a different guy than what I have learned, then that becomes a moment where we all paid a lot more attention. This is maybe the moment to turn back to what Matt, what you started on before about, uh, because as part of that, as, as, uh, as Axel, David Axelrod said, uh, he went on, Mitt Romney went on Univision and struck a different tone than in the primaries, at least tone, it was much more kind of in, uh, welcoming uh, uh, for, uh, for Hispanics. What were you hoping to, what, what did you think was realistic to achieve at that point uh, with Hispanic voters, there was one report that you, uh, that I think was renounced, that uh, you were hoping to get to 38% as an internal goal among them. What did you think you could do, and how were you trying to do it and, and, as you kind of moved into September? Was that an internal goal? Well, I don't think it, I mean, it was. It, there was a report of it. Go ahead. Yeah. Was there an internal goal? Let's ask that. Uh, well, the, 
that was that was a, a Florida yeah. uh, Florida activist and he said it much earlier uh, in the year and said our goal is to get what a number that was there. Before. Thirty-eight was so, the number. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was not. But in any case, what was the number we talked about? What, what 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 was there a number that you talked about? But back to Matt's point about not, <laughs> not national, not, not, not nationally, nationwide. Not nationally. In Florida, we broke it down to the Cuban community in the South, the I four mm. corridor with the Puerto Ricans in the in the I four corridor. You know, in in Nevada. I mean, it, it wasn't a national number. It was where do we need to be in these specific states? Mm -hmm. uh, and and so, what did you think, maybe Matt? You can talk now. What, what did you think was achievable? with Hispanic voters after the conversation in the primary in the states that you cared about, which were presumably Florida, Colorado, and Nevada? Well, obviously, we thought we could do well enough with the Hispanic community to win Florida. And we knew we had certain vote goals that Rich just outlined. And so we put a premium and an effort on that. Um, we also thought we could, we could potentially move numbers in Nevada. I don't think we were successful at that. Uh, but this is also a time where we used some of our uber surrogates, some of our rock stars, and the Republican Party, including Senator Rubio um, and uh, Governor Martinez from New Mexico. And we tried to flood the zone in, in many parts of the country with these surrogates. And, um, you know, obviously we were uh, much more aggressive with our, our TV uh, buys in, in the Hispanic media markets in those two states. And so we were making it a push to gas it. Was there ever a point at which um, and you thought about changing on self-deportation, which became a very big topic of conversation? Was that, was that ever um, considered? I, I, no. OK. Um, I mean, the, the, it would be interesting to hear that the, the Obama campaign speak to this, but uh, they're clearly the, uh, one would think, that the timing of the uh, waiver on the DREAM Act, or whatever the technical term is, uh, was, I thought, very smartly played um, and was um, raised, if, if only because it raised the profile of the issue. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the sort of thing you can do as president. That is the example of the advantage you have that incumbents well, have. David, you said this morning that uh, the governor made Faustian bargains during the uh, Faustian bargains during the uh, uh, Republican primaries. Is immig was immigration one of those that you were specifically thinking of? Well, yes. I, I mean, I felt like they had an, a strategic, a short-term strategic imperative, which was to get by Rick Perry, and I thought that. Um, there were reverberations from some of that positioning throughout. I don't think it was the only thing, but I think, but it was definitely important from a tonal kind of standpoint, and it was hard to get out from under that. So, David, you're seeing Mitt Romney doing better, uh, relating more. Yeah, well, let me let me just say there's one thing yeah. in the middle of it. I, I I know you get giddy when we talk about demographics, yeah, but yes. um, <laughs> I'm, wait I'm waiting. <laughs> I, well, I had to move it to the end, okay? Because we're holding. But uh, I mean, and this is and maybe I'm sure you guys are going to get to this. There was one big sort of um, event in the midst of this, which was with this tape. Yes, which is where, right where, right where we were. Yeah, and, go, ahead. It, it, go uh, ahead. And so, you know that. That was on the negative side of the ledger yes. for these guys, even as he was making progress on the And that's what we were well, just going to say. So let's, let's yeah. start, talk about the infamous 40, 47%. Um, first of all, let me ask you guys, did you have any idea this was coming out? 
You had no idea, okay? Uh, same question over here. Did you same know this question? existed? Had, was any of you, were any of you there? Had any of you seen it? Had any of you see, heard him say anything like it on another occasion? You were there, and? I think I was, I think I was actually out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good story. You're sticking to it. Um, but I, I was at the event. So when it appeared, though, when it appeared, was this kind of like a bolt from the blue, or is this something that you had heard him say, a thought about how you would respond to, or was it just a complete surprise, Gail, maybe? No, I think that... Um, I don't have anything to add to what Stuart had said. We were, we were surprised to see it too. Well, so let's talk about the reaction to. Well, go ahead, Matt. Let me let me talk a little bit about the forty-seven percent. We we didn't know it existed. I I wasn't there. You know, maybe Stuart was there. Obviously, un unfortunately, campaigns are long, laborious processes at times, and there's many of a fundraiser, and you know, the gov was very good second go around as a candidate to make less of these kind of mistakes. But nobody's perfect. And um, so this occurred, and, um, and I think that David is right. Having worked for Governor Romney for two times, you know, two different campaigns, uh, he could be somewhat streaky. He starts to get hot, he starts to get hot. And um, he is a candidate that can put it out of the park. Some candidates can. He can go into a debate, and he can win a debate. He can give a good speech. I think oftentimes his political skills are underestimated, but there are things that he can do. He can put it out of the park, and he was starting to get his, his mojo, and this event happened. And it's unfortunate, but one thing I'd like to talk about is, um, before we get into the response of it all, you know, it, it was, as the gov was getting hot, everything coming out of the convention, our campaign was not. And this is a period where, and there's often infighting stories, and I know that you guys went through some of them as well, and they're often, you know, not always based in reality, but they were starting to exist. And, you know, it, it, it's, I think it, it's a moment that speaks to the Gov's character because he pushed through and plowed through. And I remember speaking to him, and, and, and you know, there was a lot of negativity about our campaign as a whole, but... He's a, a person that takes personal responsibility about it, and he would tell me, on the, uh, you know, to me, like, you didn't say 47%, Matt. Stuart didn't say 47%. I did. And obviously, it was not a high moment for our campaign, but I think it speaks a lot to who Mitt Romney is, and I also like to think it speaks a lot to who this campaign team is, that we were able to make a run and come back from that. Because there were periods during that time where people and many people in this room said that we had no chance. We never allowed ourselves to believe that, and the governor never allowed himself to believe that either. His, his what does a governor do when, I mean, this occurs, you're all figuring out how to do the damage control, and we could ask Gail about that because that didn't go that smoothly either, but <laughs> we can talk about that. But does the governor, ha, take us inside your room, your headquarters, and how, uh, how the governor dealt with it, as you said, taking responsibility, but Gail, how you dealt with it, because at first, you know, it took him a few days to say, I'm for 100% uh, of the people. Well, actually, it was pretty immediate, the reaction, because um, we had seen the video, you know, we had learned about it at the same time everybody else did. 
and uh, wanted to verify it, of course. And we had some trouble verifying exactly where the video had come from, and it appeared to be cut up. So there was a process there where we wanted to see what came before and what came after, and if there was some kind of context that was being, it was being taken out of. Um, but the governor did respond that evening. Uh, if you remember, he was in, I believe, Arizona for a, a right. finance right. event and stepped outside the event, and, and uh, he did uh, make a response. And then, of course, the But just the to interrupt there, the, the initial event. response was not to renounce it, right? The initial response did not renounce the comments. Uh, no, they, it did not. Right. But at, and as you said, in the, in the next couple of days, we did make a point to emphasize that the governor is for 100 percent. Can you talk a little bit about the process from your initial reaction to getting to that point? What, what, what well, happened? Well, we wanted to be, we wanted to provide a statement and some kind of an, an explanation immediately, which is why we had the governor, you know, go out and, and do that at the fundraiser. And it's something that he wanted to do. He wanted to make very, he wanted to address it because he saw the clip. We, you know, we read him the transcript. Um, and then the next couple of days, it, it was one of those things that we both have experienced in the campaign that just doesn't go away. And we, there, it was there for, you know, three or four days as the, the first question, the second question, the third question that, that we were getting. Um, and then if you remember, you know, a couple of days uh, after that, then that's when we, we started to lay Dan, on. Dan, can I bring you in here before bringing in the, the Obama folks? Because Although he hadn't phrased it the same way, this was pretty much a staple of Paul Ryan's major economic speeches, the idea that we were reaching a dangerous tipping point in the history of the country where a majority of the country would be dependent on government benefits, his big AEI speech, his big heritage speeches. This was something he said quite often, and I remember wondering as Mitt Romney was moving away from these comments, uh, did, that, did the renunciation create any concern for Paul Ryan, who had made a similar argument for years? It's a different argument into it. But I think, I think the, um, I mean, I think one of the problems with the 47% uh, comment is it sounded like he was a pundit. So it sounded like almost too analytical. So it wasn't just that I think the language, you know, was offensive to a lot of people, but it didn't sound like a president. It sound, sounded like an analyst. And I think that's What's wrong where, with analysts? Sorry, sorry. Well, <laughs> so I, it wasn't, I mean, you know, Paul obviously had the same reaction we did to it, but it wasn't, he didn't feel that, that Mitt was moving away from some sort of economic philosophy that he'd advocated. So let me let me ask Neil. Did your numbers, did, and then we'll we'll go to the no. Obama folks. But what happened uh, to to your internal numbers when you saw this? When the forty seven percent became, as Gail points out, a three day story, a four day story, uh, we got playing into the playing into yeah, their well, narrative. We got bitter and started clinging to our guns. And <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> you, you, you first saw it in the verbatims coming back. It, it was almost immediate. Um, it had the effect of, of course, washing out finally the Democratic convention bump. Um, and, uh, but it, uh, it, you, you, you saw it in, 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 our, in, in the verbatims and you saw it in the numbers and, um, and the ballot test began to ed edge apart a little bit. So that, this was a this was a difficult time. It was a challenging time for us. How much? I mean, really edge apart, or I mean, uh, were you worried? Worried? Really worried? I, about I go that? through the entire. Well, as these guys will tell you, I know I'm he's always, always worried. worried. Yeah, I, I mean, know that. You That's know that. Neil. So, I mean, okay. I, you know, so yeah, but Matt. Okay. Um, Before we we can hear them comment on it, but I, I want to talk about how you dig out. But do you want to have? Yeah, them let's have. Them, let's have them talk a little bit. About, what, how do you think? How do you think? How do you? What was the effect of this on the race, particularly given the portrait that you were trying to paint? And then maybe Teddy can come in and talk a little bit about the about the effect in terms of activating the the online. Uh, 
so, so first on the qualitative side, um, we picked up within 24 hours that there were a couple of lines. The one that stuck out the most, and Neil probably heard it in the, in the verbatims, was, you know, I don't have to be concerned with those people. Uh, and what we started hearing in the focus groups a lot was this kind of recognition of this is the story that I was hearing about this guy during the summer. So in some ways it was affirming or reaffirming the narrative. Yeah. Um, this piece that, that he was beginning to cure. So that was the first thing. Uh, in the quantitative, in the polling, what we saw uh, in our, both our aggregate kind of battleground level then within states is probably about an increase of about 2% on the margin. Uh, when we took a look at who those folks were, it was interesting that people were not moving towards Obama. There was a peeling off uh, from Governor Romney to undecided in all of our analysis at that time when we looked at who those people were based on support scores that analytics was doing is that these, these voters are going to go back mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. Governor Romney at some point. So we always looked at the fact that we have gone you know, from a three and a half point lead to maybe four and a half or five uh, as in realistic terms, a, a kind of a temporary uh, piece to this. But it was, you know, Republican-leaning independents that we saw, uh, white males, uh, especially on the younger side, who weren't necessarily open to the president, but were once again undecided. Uh, and so that was kind of the immediate research perspective that we saw. So just to get everything lined up properly, David, we, your mic. we arrange for a debate. Your mic. Yeah. Yeah. Your mic. Sorry. No, I was just yeah. messing around. Yeah. <laughs> Stephanie, how, what? If my mic, <laughs> if, uh, you know, I know everybody in this room didn't believe us at the time, but we were saying very publicly that as this 2% moved away from Romney, that it wasn't necessarily ours. And the race was much closer than people thought at the time. And going into that debate, we did face a problem coming out of the 47% and the conventions of expectations. Um, and we, we didn't believe we were that far ahead. We thought the race was very close. But this helped you. I mean, it, it certainly helped us in terms of an overall narrative. And, and to what extent was it a galvanizing event for your for your you know, your organization and your base? You know, I think uh, obviously it, it was it was galvanizing. But there's a degree to which, uh, and I, I'm sure Zach will sympathize. Um, you know, the the political purposes and the and the motivational purposes are, are sometimes uh, aligned against each other. And uh, you know, t to the extent that our people perceived that we were becoming, you know, the clear favorites in the race, that's not helpful. Uh, and that costs us money and that costs us volunteers. Uh, so, um, you know, I think that certainly uh, helped uh, burnish some of our, our folks' uh, opinion of Governor Romney. But it, it, was, it wasn't helpful for us at all. I, 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 I suspect you saw the same. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't as helpful um, in the sense that, that some of our folks did get a little bit, not, not necessarily complacent, but there was less urgency to come into the office the next, the next morning when you feel like you're up by seven as opposed to feeling, you know, in, in, in a couple of states are, you know, up by four as opposed to it being a very close race. Although I, I do think that um, it, it was harder online than on the ground because of the way that we built our field program and the relationships that we had with folks and that we treated every state uh, differently that uh, people I don't think it really ever set in with our volunteers and certainly our staff. Uh, and partly because of Jim's leadership and, and acts and how they would talk about, do not let uh, high polls at any time or low polls get you up or down because this race is going to be well, tight Well, let me ask end. Zach about this because did you see it and was this demoralizing? I mean, in terms, and, and Rich can speak to this, you know, 
these things can demoralize campaigns. You feel like you're kind of in a trough. And did you see that? I think, you know, again, your core group, that, that's what is online. I mean, it has the ultimate ability to scale and be flexible. But you have people who kind of you know, rally to the flag and come together. I think the challenge is it gives people an opportunity who didn't like you in the first place internally, and I don't mean internally in the campaign, but on the Republican side, to start to take shots. And, and that makes it very, And very that difficult. happened. Yeah, that happens. And that makes it very difficult because that dominates conversations on Twitter. That like, kind of seeds conversations that spin out to these larger narratives that you're dealing with. And I think, it, you know, it is the same thing. I mean, it also gave us kind of the bigger catapult out of the first debate, which allowed us to make up almost all the ground that we'd lost because suddenly, you know, this overwhelming, you almost could see it. I mean, after that first debate, it was like you were on air for 36 hours. I mean, it was everything was so simple because there had been all this pent-up energy just waiting to move from a campaign to a cause, and that was kind of the, the signal going off, I think, throughout. So, Matt, you wanted to talk about the digging out, and you, and you talked about the piling on first, which not only from the Democrats but also from Republicans. Peggy Noonan called the campaign a rolling calamity, if I, if I recall, and, and there was piling on and despair in the Republican uh, Party, and I, you know, Ann Romney, you could see her frustration. <laughs> Uh, in her interviews, you know, when people were talking to her, she said, you go run a campaign, see how tough it is. Um, you could sense that. Got it. Gloria, right. let, let's yeah. dig out of this. It's getting okay. depressing. <laughs> First off, uh, our campaign staff, um, you know, we had meetings, all staff meetings going back to the very day when it was in a very tiny, small room. And whether the campaign staff listened to me or not, I can't speak to that, but we always warned everybody on our campaign that there was going to be highs and lows. Never get too high when things are going well. Never get too low when things aren't going well. This obviously was the epitome of low during the course of a campaign. However, when you're on a campaign, you have to fight back, and you have to put a plan together, and you have to execute on it. So what we did is we put together a basic, simple, five-point plan that we knew we had to execute on if we had any chance of coming back. And, you know, that's how the governor solves problems. He gets people together, and we had an opportunity in September, late in September, where the Gov was back in Boston, and we gathered some of our brightest minds together, and we laid out the plan and got people's input. Which was? The first step of the plan was pretty simple. It was to have a good first debate, all right? The second point of the plan was to, to really gin up our, our surrogate load because to Zach's point, it was popular at the time to pile on the governor. So we had our loyal best surrogates, whether it was folks like Governor John Sununu, who's sitting over there, whether it was Senator Marco Rubio, Governor Bob McDonald, Senator Kelly Ayotte, uh, Governor Nikki Haley, uh, Senator Rob Portman, they went out in heavy doses and went out as surrogates and, um, and as, as people to speak to the governor's character all over the country. Uh, third, and this goes to the, what I talked about before, whenever we went big, it was good for Mitt Romney. So we, were, we knew we had to give some big speeches. And so we decided we needed to give three big speeches. Our goal was to give a big speech on national security. Our goal was to give another big speech on jobs and economy and expand on what the Gov was going to do to turn around the economy. And third was to talk about deficits and entitlement reform. We felt if we were talking about big topics, 
big issues, it would force the media to talk about policy and ideas. Fourth, we knew coming out of the debates that we would have to take a look at potentially shifting resources to different target states, and we could talk about that a little bit later. And finally, we, need, we, knew, we knew we needed to freshen up our events, because to the point that David made, um, or maybe it was Neil, that some people at that moment thought that um, that moment in time was not very presidential. One of the tips that I got and what I heard often, and again, I was at the campaign headquarters, not at the, the events, so you're watching these events on TV. And we had the Gov up there walking around the stage before big, huge rallies, and he was always screaming. So when you watch the nightly news, you would have the President of the United States, who you guys had behind a podium with some notes, not a teleprompter, and we had the Gov walking around at a rally feeling like he needed to, to get everyone, all the 5,000 people there all riled up. It was a simple change, but it was important because it's all about the pictures. So we had from that point on the Gov stand behind a podium and stick more to notes. So that was a five-point plan uh, we felt that we could execute on. And even if it didn't work, it gave our campaign something to focus on and something to execute on, and that's what as we needed. So this was how long after the 47%? So this sort of took a, a week, or was it? It was days after the 47% the comment. As, so both as Matt and both David, both Matt and David have suggested, the next big event in the campaign obviously is the first debate. Uh, so let's talk. Thank a goodness. Little, let's yeah, start let's, talking about. Let's that. talk a little bit about how, what's that? And, and we'll talk. We'll bring in Frank in. We'll bring it. Bring it. I'm going to bring in Frank in a minute. But let, let me start by asking each side um, how they prepared uh, for this debate, and also what how what goals you identified. What what were you above all trying to achieve? Uh, in this uh, debate. And we heard this morning that Governor Romney wanted more and more preparation on debate time in, in the spring. Was it that way in the fall as well? How did you prepare? What were you trying to achieve at that first debate? Um, well, I, I admit, indeed, um, wanted a lot of preparation. I think the words that he used at one point where he wanted this to be the Manhattan Project of our campaign. When did he say that? Early on? Oh, in the springtime. Um, I looked at my notes. We had our first uh, debate prep in June. And we had, uh, you know, going to what exactly what David said, you know, we anticipated in advance that in, in October there would be wall-to-wall -wall coverage, that people would want to see it on the line. And we knew that there was a good cho chance that whatever was happening in the campaign, that we'd, we'd need a, a winning jolt. And Mitt was very aware of that. And he, he wanted um, to make this a, a big project. Um, the way he does that is he prepares. And we started off with, with we, we planned to do three things with him, policy sessions, strategy sessions, and mock debates. And we started the policy sessions in, in June. Um, we would go about um, preparing deep dives that, ha that were different from the policy he'd seen in the primary. They had all of our policy, all of Obama, President Obama's policy, quotes from President Obama, quotes from Mitt Romney, and then what we called factoids and nuggets, which was just sort of interesting things about that topic that, that might get Mitt thinking about how he would want to answer this. Um, we would generally look, I'd look at his schedule and I'd see if he was going to take a cross-country trip. Um, 
I would, you know, want our policy shop to deliver those things before the trip so that he, he could, we could use his time um, to study because he always complained, as I'm sure President Obama did, that he didn't have enough time to look at this stuff that we prepared. Um, we started, uh, as I said, in June. We, we had a series of, of, of policy and strategy meetings in June, July, and August. Then during – Beth, can you define, define what you mean by strategy? Debate well, strategy were, or – Yeah, those were led mostly by Stuart. And what Stuart would do is – the policy briefings were pretty much led by Lan He Chen. Stuart would lead the strategy meetings where we would, it would be a, a – with, with the policy, it was very small group. Um, Lan He, Stuart, and me, sometimes Dan if we were doing foreign policy. Um, and when we did the strategy, we, we expanded the group a little bit. And we had the, the team here and, and some of, of our colleagues over there. Uh, sitting over there, a larger group, and we would talk about, you know, how do we want to approach this? Um, we'd bandy ideas about about how do we attack President Obama's um, positions. Um, and then the mock debates, of course, were somewhat different. We recruited Senator Portman um, to to play President Obama, and he did, he did it with aplomb um, and uh, pretty much came loaded for bear every time. We did have starting at, we didn't do any mock debates before the convention. Uh, I had wanted to, and, and Mitt just, his head wasn't in that, in that game. But starting the, um, during your convention, during the Dem convention, we had um, a debate, what we call debate camp up at, uh, in a house in Vermont, and we did five mock debates in three days. Mm. Um, and then for fun at night, we, um, we did whiteboard sessions. Uh, so it was a pretty intense time, and, and, and um, all told, we did 16 mock debates. How, how was he? I mean, because he had spent a year debating. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing. Well, you know, we, we looked at that very different. Those four, the debates in the primary were really like candidate forums. They were nothing like what we did um, in preparing for um, our, our debates with, with President Obama. And, you know, what we, we also did before each debate, we, we created a series of goals. We'd synthesize and th synthesize, and then Stuart and, and, and I would meet with a uh, couple other people at times and come up with, a, you know, a list of, of, of goals for each debate, and each of them were different. Um, Stuart's mantra was always, Mitt's got to stay loose. He's got to be relaxed. He's got to be comfortable. And the way he gets relaxed and loose and comfortable is being prepared. So we really knew we needed to prepare him and make him comfortable a lot of time. Stuart, was there a goal uh, beyond the, uh, the case that you were trying to make against uh, President Obama uh, or the case you were making for your own agenda? Was there kind of a, a portrait of the governor that you wanted to emerge for, from this in terms of, uh, as Beth was saying about him personally, why was it important for him to be loose? What were you trying to convey about him through this and how did that fit into your strategy as you were preparing? Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think everybody that spends time with the governor, and some people in this room spent a lot of time with the governor, and I, I think the reporters saw, and I, I think it probably happens with every campaign, you know, well, if only you could see the real Mitt Romney. Um, and uh, he's, he's very funny. And very positive, and he's is, is, is someone whose people are, is, are drawn to, and we wanted to capture some of that—a sense of um, a bigness—and he's, he's a big guy. And part of the process in that primary debate, when you have eight, nine people up there, it tends to reduce you in stature. Um, and 
so there is something automatically about, you know, as, as David has spoken to, standing on stage as a president that benefits the challenger. Um, and you wanted to like this person. It's tricky because, you know, most times the person who's most aggressive in a debate wins. So it has to be a balance. Um, and it's a, it's a, you kind of never know what will happen. And, and Romney had had problems with his favorable, unfavorable ratings, so that was always an issue you guys were thinking about. So let, let's talk about... Um, you know, one, one other thing, on, on every issue, one of the things that was also very different from the primary is that we had, uh, we were very um, focused on finding an attack, a place to attack President Obama on every issue. We didn't do that in the primary, but in the general election, that's what we did. So that when Mitt came on that stage of the first debate, he was loaded for bear on, on, every, on every issue. Yeah, let, let, all right, right. Let, let's talk about the president's uh, 16 mock debates now, David. Yeah. First, I, I just was got an email from Messina saying, call me when the debate discussion's over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how were you able to prepare, we, uh, and what were your goals going in? Well, first of all, you asked, our, our goal was that Seamus uh, uh, mentioned that we had this inflated lead, and we wanted to erase that in one night. So <laughs> <laughs> Bring Mission accomplished. Bring expectations right. down. Yeah, I say we were rather effective. Yeah. Um, look, I had always had circled on the calendar this date as a potential problem for us just because of history. History has been very clear on this. Very rarely does a president escape this first debate. Did you tell shape. him that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We all had this discussion. By the way, I mean, he had voluminous materials that are probably not unlike the ones you prepared. Uh, and he would read them also on cross-country flights. And, you know, we, we and, and, and I really believe actually we gave him too much material, um, which also I think is a, 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 f a mistake that's been repeated in history over time. Not you already. can over yeah. over-prepare in that regard. Um, and, uh, but, uh, yes, yeah, so we had that discussion. And, 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 you know, I talked to Mark McKinnon. I don't know if he's in the room here about... Uh, about the Bush uh, debates in 2004, and uh, and Stuart, you may have been around for that, but you know, Mark said exactly what we experienced as presidents. First of all, no one's been in their grill like that for four years, right? We had 28 primary debates, I think, most of them, you know, with Senator Clinton, then Senator Clinton, who was quite a sparring partner, and uh, the president was sort of in game shape, uh, Senator Obama. By the time we got to uh, these debates. So it was a simpler task. Uh, to be honest with you, Senator McCain was not the debater that Mitt Romney is. And we had respect for Romney as a debater, even though you're qu quite right, uh, Beth, that the primary debates were much different. They're much different. Uh, particularly, you know, we got down to one-on-one -on -one debates. You never had one-on-one -on -one, uh, debates. Yeah, but primarily group. But even in that setting, when he needed to do something, I mean, you guys had your backs in the, against the wall in Florida, and he executed. And every single time he had to execute, he did. And we also studied the debate, debates with Ted Kennedy back in 1994. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was clear that he was going to be prepared, that he'd have a strategy, that he'd execute uh, on that strategy. So presidents aren't used to this. There is sort of a, why do I have to do this attitude, even if it's not articulated. I mean, the president showed up for all the prep, read everything we asked him to read. But in a sense, he was, you know, it's almost as if he showed up for a, I, I said this to many of you at the time, he showed up for a discussion and they showed up for a debate, which is largely a performance. Uh, you've got 
uh, allotments of time on given subjects, and you, you need to know what you're going to say. I would venture to say that these guys knew when they heard the questions what Governor Romney was going to say uh, in answer to those questions. And that's how you know that you're well prepared. And you didn't? Uh, in that first debate, I would say we didn't. Okay. Was uh, there any? We're going to take a break here in a moment. And, and I and by the way, go through the I, I, I put this on us. I mean, I, you know, we learned a lot from the first. All right, what debate. were the what were the, the strategic? Before we come back, and we'll talk about the debate, and then October. Uh, what were the strategic goals going into the debate? Was there a desire? The strategic for goal was to was to burnish uh, our message. The you know the the the, the uber economic message of. Uh, uh, of middle class economics versus top down, and, and yet, uh, and yet, as you say that, he did not repeat at the debate the most common attacks on that no, you would we'll be making on that. Romney, as we'll talk about yeah. in a minute. So, be, as kind of a last question before we break, was there any desire to be explicit desire to be above the fray? Was there a feeling that to really engage with Romney would somehow be diminishing uh, as a as a president? Well, there was a concern that uh, that engaging in the wrong way could be diminishing. Uh, you know, angry exchanges are not uh, helpful exchanges. Um, so there was a concern on that, and I think those discussions probably were counterproductive. Uh, but, you know, I, I personally don't, you know, I, and, and we have a superb debate team. Ron Klain is as good as there is. Um, we have a superb debate team, but I think we made adjustments between the first and second to, debate that to, were, were important Stewart, based on our experience. To Stewart's uh, point, though, which is um, that just by appearing on the stage with yes. the president, Mitt Romney becomes Absolutely. elevated to a plausible— million people watching. Yeah. Right, to a plausible yeah. president. Yes. Did you have a sense that you could disqualify him in any way from that? From that characterization in the in the first debate, was that part of your goal? Well, um, I think there's part of that you just have to concede. Just the act of standing on that stage is an it's an elevating uh, deal. Now the two guys are on an equal uh, equal plane. You know, we obviously we we had a strategy for engaging on elements of uh, these issues that uh, where we felt he had vulnerability and where we felt we had strength, but. I do think we were a little phobic about engagement. We gave that instruction to the president, uh, and I th and I think that was not. Uh, it, it, what's the instruction? And um, um, well, when you say don't a little get phobic, into a brawl, don't basically. get into a brawl. Okay. So, so our two leading characters are about to step onto the stage in Denver, and we will take a short break and take come back and take you through and that move, debate and the final weeks of the race, and we'll move on to Hofstra. <laughs>